Hey, and welcome back to the history of China. There was yet another delay in between episodes, and for that, I apologize. In all honesty, I am unbelievably stretched out right now in between work and class, but here we are. The support I get from all you guys is really just fantastic, though. And I will keep pushing through because this podcast, well, it's one of the few things in my busy life that I really just love, no matter how much time it takes. And obviously, per the usual, don't forget to check out the website. Go to dormroomhistory.com slash thehistoryofchina to see more about this episode, past episodes, information about me, comment sections, and the donate page. And be sure to rate the show five stars if you really love it. It might not seem like a lot to you, but it really does go a long way. But last week, we dove into the beginning of the Qin Dynasty. Qin Shi Huangdi maybe unknowingly poked the bear in, well, that he essentially ambushed the nomadic Xiongnu tribes in the Ordus Loop, but he then began building the first part of the Great Wall of China. Measurements, currency, and language and script, well, they were all standardized. A lot happened in a short amount of time. But now, laws and philosophies, well, they were also going to be standardized. Furthermore, there was, well, new conquests to embark on. The Ordus loop to the northwest was great. But what about the south? Well, the Qin were going to try that. And lastly, well, Qin Shi Huangdi was going to try and live forever. That was the last on the to-do list. So without further ado, The History of China, Episode 23, Soldiers Made of Terracotta. The Qin Dynasty did not last forever, but it lived like a 13-year-old social media bio. It lived for the now. Devil emoji. Fire emoji. Praying emoji. Qin Shi Huangdi had sent forces northwards to evict the Xiongnu from the Ordus Loop. We know that. But what I didn't tell you is that the force sent north was but a small portion of the whole Qin army. Yeah, he sent a sizable force that would have dwarfed most armies on Earth at that moment in time, but the vast majority of the Qin army was preparing for a different mission. A hundred thousand men went north in 215 to evict the Xiongnu in essentially an invasion, well, out of self-defense. And yes, that invasion force was immensely successful at accomplishing the task at hand. And, well, it also, well, kicked the Xiongnu into a new gear for the near future. Regardless, five times that manpower that headed north was now heading south to conquer the southern tribes. Now, the Qin had already experienced success invading tribes in the south. Several decades, and thus several episodes ago, we talked about how the Qin state invaded the southern Ba and Shu states in modern-day Sichuan. But now, it is the southern Yue tribes in the Qin scope. The Yue tribes in these subsequent regions occupied modern-day North Vietnam and southern China. 
And I mean, look, no regular army has ever had issues dealing with guerrilla tactics in the Vietnamese jungles. Though, all facetious foreboding aside, the Chin were alleged to have sent 500,000 men south in 214 BC. Modern historians do doubt this number, and I do too. Feeding, arming, and moving them all on the small roads, if not just through wilderness, would be probably impossible. Still, it was an utterly massive force that moved south. Though, well, the Chin army was unfamiliar with the jungle terrain. Fortunate sun was not blaring out of horse chariots, but the fact is, the Chin showed up, got to around modern-day Guangzhou, and then were defeated. Boom. Not only were they defeated, but the Chin army, which remember, this was the majority of the entire Chin army, was very nearly annihilated by these southern Yue tribes' guerrilla tactics. Guerrilla tactics in the Southeast Asian jungles have been a problem since, well, at least 214 BC. The Qin lost their commander, he was killed, and they also lost at least over 10,000 men in total. But look, while this operation was off to several setbacks at the hands of the guerrilla tactics from the tribes still coming through the Bronze Age themselves, the Qin came with more than 10,000 men. The Qin Dynasty imperial government said, look, this initial push is not going to go that deep, but we're not going to abandon the mission. In turn, what they would do is that they would begin to promote a series of policies for assimilating the Yue tribes through cynicization. And every great story here with Qin Dynasty expansion seems to involve some lucrative engineering project. So, well, in fashion with the last episode and the second episode, the Qin Dynasty were going to embark on quite the waterwork. During this time, they constructed a canal that they used to ferry men and supplies for their second attack, which, yeah, was more successful. By the end of 214 BC, the Qin had conquered all the way into northern Vietnam and had also constructed a litany of these canals and some of which gave them increased sea access, and that is something that will bear fruit later on. So the northern and southern borders have been expanded. Quite a lot, actually. But what the heck is going on within the heart of the Qin dynasty? Well, if you think legalism won't mesh well with the other schools of thought, well, you're right. Everyone was now under the Qin yoke. And therefore, everyone was under the legalist yoke as well. Legalism, as we know by now, is a zero-sum philosophy. And it really doesn't work well with anything else. So if I told you that the Qin brutally enforced a legalism-only policy by burning books of the other philosophies and killing their thinkers, would you be surprised? Well, it turns out that the Qin brutally enforced a legalism-only policy by burning books of the other philosophies and killing their thinkers. Though I will say it's important to remember that this history of the Qin dynasty is given to us by and large by later dynasties. 
dynasties that were often dominated by the schools of thought persecuted by the Qin. So we know legalism is brutal. Yeah, no one's doubting that. But keep that tidbit in the back of your head that those who are relaying this information to us now probably had a dog in this fight. But nonetheless, in 213 BC, with the encouragement from Li Se, Qin Shi Huangdi and the dynasty went out with the goal of destroying every book except those on astrology, agriculture, medicine, divination, and of course, the history of the Qin. The goal was so that you could not now compare Qin Shi Huangdi to any older or venerated rulers from the books. You also can't question legalism, because, well, what are you going to question it against if all the books are gone? But we can still read the stars, that's fine, we can heal ourselves, we can grow our food, and of course we can know how amazing the Qin history was. Then, in probably a bit of a bait-and-switch, the Qin allegedly said all books, not in the new script that they just set as the official script, were also banned too. And yeah, not many books were written within the last year and a half, so that pretty much meant everything they didn't want would be banned. Now, this is where it begins to venture off a bit into the dubious history realm. It is chronicled by later ancient Chinese historians that owning books key to Confucianism, like the Book of Songs, while owning those and having them in your possession, were punishable up to death. Now, was this because these books were not in the new script, or was it because they were banned? Well, it's actually not clear. What is clear, though, is what Sima Qian, the Han-era historian, claimed to happen next. Sima Qian alleges that 460 Confucian scholars were buried alive for owning these books. Were the Qin brutal? Yes, no one is doubting that. But this anecdote from Sima Qian is widely debunked from modern historians as being, well, probably not true. That isn't saying people weren't buried alive. However, the Confucian-influenced Sima Qian recount of those people being Confucius, well, that was probably not who was buried alive en masse, if anybody even was. Though, interestingly, modern historians stipulate Sima Qian did not make this up out of whole cloth, but instead say it's very possible it was alchemists who failed to deliver an immortality elixir to Qing Shi Huangdi that got buried alive. The alchemists were Confucian. However, that's not why they were potentially killed because there were many Confucian scholars very loyal to the Qin, so it is believed that this surviving cadre of Confucian scholars went under the next dynasty, simply altered the story a bit to distance themselves from the Qin. So the actual truth is closer to alchemists were buried alive because they had not delivered an immortality elixir. The truth is sometimes stranger than fiction. But that truth holds a lot of weight. Because as I have remarked already, Qin Shi Huangdi did not want to die. He truly wanted to rule forever. 
He couldn't stand his own mortality and constantly sought out the aforementioned elixir of life. He was going to do anything to get it. But we know Qin Shi Huangdi pretty well. And we know he doesn't tend to leave any chips on the table. Beyond just searching for an elixir of life, he visited Jerfu Island several times to visit its fabled mountain of immortality. He also sent hundreds of people out into the ocean in search of the other fabled mountain named Peng Lai, which is mythological entirely, and interestingly though, it appears in early Japanese histories as well, this mythological mountain. Though of all the hundreds of people that were sent out to the sea, none would ever return. Maybe because they were, well, sent aimlessly into the Pacific Ocean. Though maybe it was perhaps because they knew that if they returned without the elixir, well, they were going to be executed anyway. But now this is where it gets kind of interesting. Because some legends claim that those hundreds of people that were sent out into the ocean, well, they reached Japan and colonized it. Though as cool as that sounds, it's still just a legend. Qin Shi Huangdi would also kill those who said that their elixirs or their other means of preventing death worked. So, well, he would have them try it, kill them, and then wait for them to turn out to not actually be dead because their elixir or their other means worked. Spoiler, they tended to always stay dead. Though the question still exists as to why the emperor was so afraid of death. People don't want to die, and have tried all across the world throughout all of history to try and avoid it. But why was the first emperor of China with unlimited power, so afraid of it. Well, it appears that the most powerful man in the history of China to this point was actually somewhat self-aware to a degree. He had killed and murdered his way into unification, and he began to become increasingly paranoid over evil spirits haunting him in this life and the next. He even built over 200 tunnels in his palace to avoid traveling in the open because he saw this as a means of eluding those evil spirits. I mean, he was tortured in life and he was tortured in the fear of death. And in 211 BC, a large meteor is said to have fallen in Dongjun in the lower reaches of the Yellow River. Now, Obviously, a meteor is a big deal back then, especially when people don't really know where it comes from. And when it was found, an unknown person, no one knows who, etched the words, quote, The first emperor will die, and his land will be divided. End quote. Obviously, when the emperor, who was that scared of death and that scared of losing his power, heard about this, he sent an imperial secretary to investigate it. Nobody admitted to writing it as a joke. Nobody admitted to writing it at all. So, well, all the people living nearby it were just put to death. And the stone or meteorite or whatever it was, was destroyed. 
A man as insanely afraid of death and his legacy as Qin Shi Huangdi was, well, he was not going to let that slide lightly. So of course the whole village was murdered and the stone was destroyed. But look, is this story real? Did this happen? For the sake of the story, I'm going to loosely believe it. If it is true, well, whoever wrote that on the stone would be the ancient Chinese Nostradamus. In the summer of 210 BC, the next year, during another tour in eastern China, Qin Shi Huangdi fell gravely ill, multiple months of travel away from his capital. And on the 10th of September, 210 BC, Qin Shi Huangdi finally fell to the one thing he couldn't overcome, death. By the sword, he had unified China in a myriad of ways other than just putting them all under one leader. And ironically, it is alleged that the cause of death was from an ever-increasing intake of mercury as part of his elixir regiment. His quest to live forever led him to die faster. Though it is also alleged that the stress from running the dynasty wore him down. Either way, no one knows quite for sure what really caused the first emperor of China to die. Though according to Sima Qin, before the emperor's death, he had ordered 700,000 men to build a mausoleum for himself in the event that he did in fact die. Now you don't know, maybe the elixir works, but in the case that it doesn't and I do die... I better have a mausoleum ready for me the moment I die. And, well, for essentially the rest of human history, that is the end of that. No one ever finds it, and the tomb is probably not even real. And if it was, it couldn't have been that spectacular that it would even be possible 700,000 men even got close to it. But wait, hold up. No, no one found it? Ever? Okay, here. Close your eyes. Imagine it's the year 210 BC. It's, it, it's a long time ago. Don't worry if it doesn't feel very clear. Okay, well, okay. Think of, oh, I don't know, 1974. All right, well, the Cold War is in full swing. The oil crisis is winding down. The most popular song of the year is by Barbara Streisand. And the Chicago Bears have yet to win a Super Bowl. Oh, and Chairman Mao, yeah, he's still alive. But in 1974, something within many people's living memory today happened. In a village outside of Xi'an, China, X-I apostrophe A-N, a farmer in March was digging a well. But then he struck something and began to find things. And after digging around these objects and pulling them out, he contacted the state authorities. No, I'm just kidding. He did find objects, but no authorities were contacted. Like the oracle bones we had earlier in this show, the objects that were found were simply sold to locals for pennies, for other things, for other uses. It wasn't until a local manager of a small factory suggested that they, 
instead of just selling them to each other, that they should sell them to the cultural center. So for 10 yuan, which is virtually nothing, the man who ran the cultural center was able to get two whole carts of these artifacts. And upon looking at them, he realized, there's something here, and it's definitely worth a whole lot more than 10 yuan. And on the 29th of May, 1974, archaeologists showed up to examine the field in question. And quickly, it became apparent they had not just found something. They found a lot of things. Things that would represent one of the largest discoveries in modern times. Maybe ever, depending on who you ask. Because what they found was a massive group of pottery figures. The largest ever found, ever, today. Never has more been found. Little did they know, though, there was much more still under the ground. After dating the objects, and as well as reading inscriptions around the site, it became clear that the almost mythological tomb of Qin Shi Huangdi was finally found. Now, the word tomb might be a disservice to this whole thing, and it's often described as a necropolis. Why? Well, this terracotta army first found in 1974 would only represent a small part of a roughly 38-square-mile necropolis. Thus, it truly is, translated from Greek, a city of the dead. Now, obviously, don't worry, a map and some videos will be available on the website for you to follow along with me here, because there's a lot of information that's about to come your way. The figures they found from 1974 and up to today, yeah, they're still finding them, are some of the most amazing discoveries made by humans. In total, there are so far some 8,000 life-size figures, each animated in their own way and each clocking in at 300 to 400 pounds. And yeah, wait, why would they weigh a different amount? Well, buckle up, because here comes my fanboy explanation for all of this. Okay, so, the Terracotta Army itself is divided by the four separate pits that have been found and excavated. And these are just the pits of the army, the soldiers. The pits lie just under a mile away from the giant burial mound itself. Now the first pit, that was the first found, contains the bulk of the terracotta army, with a total of 6,000 soldiers in it. And it was found with 11 corridors, each around 10 feet wide, and they were literally paved. These corridors were paved with small bricks. And to top it off, there was a wood beam ceiling covered with reed, waterproofed then with clay, and then topped off with several meters of soil. And this was all, by the way, built without any modern technology. So you're starting to see why these figures are just so incredible. So Pit 1 contains most of the army, with most of that being comprised of different infantry units. Pit 2, though, contains what many believe is a military guard, with some infantry and cavalry 
as well as full-functioning war chariots within that pit. Pit 3 is comprised of high-ranking officers and a war chariot, and that represents the command post. And Pit 4, well, Pit 4 is empty. And it's most likely because Qin Shi Huang Di died before Pit 4 could be completed. You couldn't just have him laying around there. He had to be protected in the afterlife as soon as possible. The soldiers of the Terracotta Army range in height, from around 5'6 to around 6'6. Furthermore, they all differ in uniform, height, and hairstyle by what rank they are. Yeah, the officers tend to be taller, too. And while upon first glance, it appears that every soldier has a totally unique face, which is incredible. However, modern scholars have identified ten basic facial shapes that the soldiers have. Regardless, there are armored infantry, unarmored infantry, there are cavalrymen wearing a special hat, there are kneeling crossbowmen, there's charioteers, there's everything. It's a full army. And each soldier was in a uniform specific to their rank. And yeah, it's not always so obvious. Because you know, the shin pads or lack thereof are an indication of rank sometimes too. And the armor literally appears to sometimes also be based on their location in the formation. So one officer might have a lot of armor because he's clearly an officer. But others in the front of the line, most likely to be taking the impact have more than those behind them. I mean, it's incredible. Qin Shi Huangdi went to the afterlife with a fully functioning army with virtually every minute detail done right. Oh, and he had terracotta horses too, don't worry. But while the soldiers were not real, I mean, they're made of terracotta, the weapons they held well, they most definitely were. Now, unfortunately, many of these weapons have rotted away or at some point were looted, maybe. But still, crossbows, battle axes, swords, arrows, shields, I mean, everything. And you name it, it's been found to some capacity. And this finding has been so helpful because, well, I'm trying to describe how military history works in China but it's very hard because none of the armies actually exist today. And no one's around to tell you exactly how it happened the way it did. But then you find this. With an army in battle formation. With the specific uniforms. With every detail. On so many levels, it's just one of the most incredible things ever found by humans. And lastly though, like many Roman marble statues... The terracotta warriors at the time of their burial were painted vividly. And yeah, that does shock everyone, by the way, when they find out the marble statues were painted and the terracotta warriors too. And now that doesn't seem like much to paint the terracotta warriors, but painting that many figures with the extravagant colors that they were painted with would have been a steep ask. You couldn't just order every shade of gray possible from the Home Depot in a trial kit for $10. No. You had to make all the paints and lacquers from hand. With what, though? 
with chemicals, with ground-up stones, and just from nature. And if you were wondering why, though, that they're still not colored, the reason that they are not is because once exposed to oxygen in the dry climate in Xi'an, it only takes four minutes for the color to completely flake away. But again, though, these four pits of the terracotta warriors only represent a part of a greater whole. Other pits closer to the actual tomb contain terracotta statues of officials, entertainers, acrobats, everything, and more, well, indicating that Qin Shi Huangdi was going to the next world to do more than just fight a war against evil spirits or his enemies. There are the four pits of the army, then there are the pits with the officials and the others, and then there is the actual tomb. But then in 2008 and 2015, even more pits with thousands of more figures were found. And the fact is, we still haven't seen it all. Some of it's not ever going to be excavated at this rate, to more leave it in its place. But we're still finding things today. And I'll leave more information on this on the website so I don't get too in the weeds about this. Though as much as I really want to, I know I probably should control myself. Now the actual tomb, though, where the Qin Shi Huangdi is buried, is hermetically sealed. And no effort to open it has ever been made since he was buried. And now the reason that we haven't opened it today is that it's most likely to preserve it. The sealed area, though, is the size of about a football field. And allegedly, according to the legend from Sima Chen, the tomb has rivers of mercury and palaces around it. But this whole thing was only discovered in 1974. And modern science and partial excavation is potentially proving these legends to a large degree. Oftentimes, I've critiqued ancient historians. Well, maybe not critiqued. They are only, you know, they're working with only so much. But oftentimes, things are exaggerated. But modern science and modern ex partial excavation techniques and radar signaling and all these lasers they're using, they're finding things that are proving these guys from 2,000 years ago, well, they're proving them right. In 2000, the year, a dam was discovered along with a drainage system in the necropolis. And guess what? It had a shockingly high amount of mercury in it. This is potentially completely proving everything Sima Qian said. And in 2012, the remains of a massive imperial palace were found. And this palace that they found, just outside of the actual sealed area, covers a whopping 170,000 square meters with 18 courtyard houses. This is all built for a dead man. It's insane. And now 170,000 square meters is about a quarter the size of the Imperial Palace in Beijing. What you think palace, what you think, okay, it's a big building. No, no, it's a ginormous complex with tons of courtyards in different areas. It's almost like its own city. But now close your eyes again and travel back with me back to 210 BC. Qin Shi Huangdi is buried 
protected from evil spirits with a massive army ready to fight. And is also living extremely lavishly in the afterlife. But the Jin have a serious problem on their hands. Who the heck is going to rule next? How do you top that? And were they ever going to be able to maintain this brutal control without a clear leader, let alone one of the caliber of Qin Shi Huangdi? Well, the answer is no. They won't be able to. Next week, the Qin. As quickly as they rose, they collapse. But the why and the how and the, well, then what? Well, those are for next episode. Now, the reason I spent so much time picking apart the terracotta warriors here is because it just goes to show ancient history can sometimes shock us in its truth. For instance, when they found allegedly the remains of Troy, even though that had been long written off as a myth, it's shocking to us. And it provides a lot more trust in these sources than we often give them credit for. But furthermore, and maybe more important, is that you're actually able to get face-to-face with these soldiers. And you can be within an eyeshot of Qin Shi Huangdi's resting body. And so I hope with all the time I've spent on this that one day if you have the chance to see one of these soldiers in an exhibit around the world or in the actual resting place, you can truly appreciate the enormity of that project on every level. It is truly one of the coolest things that's ever been found in modern history. Maybe all history. Now, before I let you go, though, be sure to check out the website, rate the show, and share it with your friends. Oh, and quickly, I want to hear your guys' thoughts. We should start getting more dialogues going between me and the listeners. And the question I'm going to ask is, should the tomb ever be opened? There's reasons, very good ones actually, to open it, including protecting it from looters or stopping it from getting hurt in an earthquake because there is a lot of seismic activity there. But there's also a lot of reasons to not. I'm intrigued. Why or why not? Leave comments on the page for this episode or send me emails or tweet at me or DM me on Instagram. Anyways, awesome. I want to hear your guys' thoughts. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you all next week on the history of China.